Hi, I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding the Bible in its original context and its wisdom for today. Let's get started. Welcome back, friends, to episode number five. We are talking about poetry today. So before we get started, I have to say that some of us may be coming to this conversation um, with a certain idea of what poetry is, um, and I think we may need to break that box a little bit. So do you want to kind of give a little bit of an intro to what poetry is, how we can be thinking about poetry, maybe how we can not be thinking about poetry that will serve us as we think about biblical poetry. I feel like we've already ruined this episode because <laughs> 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 like, uh, you know, some people will see the title, they'll go like poetry, skip, uh, I'll just get <laughs> to the real ones, like the law, that sounds interesting. Or uh, like me, when I see a poem, like in a book, you know, where somebody says, like the poet said, and then they quote the poem, I'm just like, skip, nope, not going to do that, right? I just want to get to the point. And so I think there's a, a sense which that impulse, that kind of like, uh, poetry, really? You know, um, you know, think if you were at a baseball game and at that, you know, I was going to say the halftime, that's not a baseball game. <laughs> at the, uh, seventh inning seventh stretch. Inning stretch. <laughs> They're like, and now we're going to bring out a poet, you know, to read their 13 minute rendition or whatever. Yeah. How we would all feel. And I think that all kind of just betrays our feelings about poetry is that it's, you know, it's romantic or fluffy or I think the main feeling we get, and this goes back to a, an actual philosophical movement in Europe called romanticism, um, is that poetry in its best form is uh, an outward expression in words of our inner deep thoughts. Um, and it's, and that's the move, right? Like you got to get it out. It's in you, the real authentic you that's in here. And then you kind of have to slap words and ideas and rhyme and meter to it. And that's what makes some beautiful illustration of the thing in here. So really the poem is just kind of like a verbal illustration of what's inside you. Um, and that's a fairly recent view of poetry and art um, that is, I would say, the dominant one that I think most of us walk in the room with. So the biblical authors are not doing that. Like most people in the ancient world and certainly like most people before the 1800s, that's just not how most people thought about poetry. Um, and so th th what are they doing, I guess, is the question. They are using poetry kind of the way we would use arguments with people. And I mean arguments not in like bickering, but arguments like you're trying to reason with somebody about some kind of a topic. And you might, um, instead of saying like, look, there's this. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. Do you agree with this? Do they'll actually just say like, look, let me, let me tell you a poem uh, that summarizes how you should feel about this thing, right? Or how <laughs> you should think about this thing. And it's just not the way we do things. Fine. Um but it does mean that we have to adjust our sensibilities about poetry and kind of lay aside some of the um, just some of the current concepts that, that that are will act as baggage that will weigh us down in the sea of poetry that we enter both in the Old Testament and the New Testament because it is a lot of poetry. Mm. Hmm. So you're saying it's more than just Psalms. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Psalms in some ways is is the minor set of poetry. I mean, mm. start flipping through the prophets and you'll see. Most modern translations will indent it when, to show you that it's uh, Hebrew poetry. You flip the prophets, and it's almost all poetry in the prophets, hmm. which later we can talk about why that is. Okay, great. So what would you say are some examples? You've talked a little bit about 
um, kind of the the fluffy notions of poetry. What are some examples of what biblical poetry is and isn't? Like some distinctive factors, maybe. Um. Well, here, let me give us an example of something fluffy that I pulled off the interwebs. Um, it's a particularly catchy song by uh, Dua Lipa called Levitating. And this is by no means an endorsement of Dua Lipa or her, <laughs> or her music or her ideology. But, I, I mean, I think this gives us a, a taste of, like, this kind of fun play illustration with words that we often find um, in, in some poetry, obviously – professional poets, the poet laureate of the United States is not doing something fluffy like this. But she says, quote, if you want to run away with me, I know a galaxy and I can take you for a ride. I had a premonition that we fell into the rhythm where the music doesn't stop for life. Glitter in the sky, glitter in my eyes, shining just the way I like. If you're feeling like you need a little bit of company, you met me at the perfect time. You want me. I want you, baby. My sugar boo. I'm levitating, right? So you can see the wordplay at work. You can see the the rhyme at work. You can see the symmetry and the, the meter of her language. Um, and if you listen to the song, it's actually very quick staccato uh, syllables. So it's fun. Uh, and it's meant to be a song about fun, love, or whatever. I don't know. What but you, you wouldn't say that it speaks to the nature of reality, per se. <laughs> well, it speaks to the nature of one particular reality. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's she's not making an argument. She's not she's not grabbing us by the collar and saying we need to talk about what's going on and you need to see this thing that I'm trying to show you. Um, and so I think there are better ways to do that using poetry. It's just not the way we think of poetry, quite honestly. And and even attempts to translate Hebrew poetry into English often fail because Hebrew is doing very specific things, and it, uh, the poetic forms of Hebrew are doing things that you just can't quite do in English. So if you look at Hebrew versions of Proverbs or Psalms or poetry in the in the uh, prophets, and then you l- just physically look at the Hebrew and then look at the English translation, you'll notice the English translation is like twice as long because mm-hmm. the English, you know, it's this common or this uh, constant sense of like, how do you say this? In the, like we have this way of saying it in Hebrew. Now, how would you say this in English? Um, so that's an example um, of the way I think we come into poetry or we might, you know, the worst version of poetry is that it's just there to merely entertain. Mm. Um, hmm. So you mentioned that poetry in the Bible kind of argues with us, but not in the sense of it's like a an argument back and forth, but in the sense of it's advocating something. Um, how does that work? Yeah, so there there is a very particular style of poetry in the Hebrew that actually tries to divide up the topic by saying, here's what it is, here's how much more so, here's what it isn't, um, and actually does this kind of slicing and dicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, of course, it's poetic, and there's a whole argument among scholars, like what makes something poetry or versus not. So when the man cries out in Genesis 2, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. There's an argument. Is that poetry or we just say it's poetic? There's, there's something about what he's saying. He's, he's not just yelling something out. It's not just something from the inner to the outer. He's actually saying, Oh, there's something about her, bone of bone, flesh of flesh that 
has this direct connection to the fact that she was taken from me. And so you, you already get like a little preview of more to come uh, of that kind of reasoning. Um, but that small style of poetry, and I mean small style by, and you can see it in your English Bibles. Um, if you open up your English Bible to any psalm or proverb uh, and most of the prophets, you'll see that most lines come in, in two parts, um, and one part is indented, the second part's indented. And the reason for that is the translator's trying to show you that the poet is saying, um, they're using this little what I call a Lego brick of poetry called parallelism, where it's basically A, then B, or A, then not B, or you could say, uh, if if such and such is the case, how much more so is it the case? Uh or if such and such is the case, then this isn't the case. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so I have some examples here that may be, may be helpful. Um, so uh, we, there, this comes under different names, uh, parallelism of extension or synonymous parallelism. Uh, but Psalm 25, 2, you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, right? So that's just extending the first idea of you have made the city a heap. How much more so the fortified city a ruin? Or like a golden ring in a pig's snout, a beautiful woman without discretion, right? And interesting in Hebrew, it just puts those next to next to each other and doesn't explain the relationship. It just assumes you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like a gold ring in a, in a pig's snout, how much more so a beautiful woman without any discretion? Um, so that's, that's the idea of here's what I'm talking about by filling it out with a, a grander version of the first thing that I said. Then of contrast, uh, this is pretty odd. Now, if you want good examples of contrast, the Proverbs are your place because there are a lot of if A, you know, A, not B, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Whoever hates reproof is stupid. It's a great translation. Um, Proverbs 10, 12, hate, hate, hatred stirs strife, but love covers all offense. Um, Psalm 23, 4, many of us know this one. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? So this idea, uh, this but not that. Um, and you have to ask the question, why are they poeticizing their thoughts this way, right? Why are they fleshing this out in poetry of this particular style and constraining themselves to this style? I mean, I think they could have written in lots of different ways, but they're, they're pretty disciplined in staying to this particular style. Uh, and the answer has to be is they're trying to show you a picture of what you, they're trying to point out the pixels. Mm. And then also remember I said you have to also say and don't be distracted by these other things that look like it but aren't, aren't it, right? Okay. Um, so these are all hints that I think we're seeing them focusing our attention on the many faceted gem and then also realizing we get distracted with things that look like it, smell like it, taste like it, touch. Mm. Uh, but those aren't it. Hmm. So it's a way of almost narrowing down and saying like, pointing with arrows like this is the thing that's important yeah yeah yeah, exactly um and and of course there's a huge section in in proverbs where the father is over the son the father and mother over the son's shoulder saying there's these two women Mm. this one looks good but don't get with her right Mm. go with uh lady wisdom um and is pointing out all the things about uh lady folly that look good and and it's the massive butts at the end of it, mm. but her her ro- her legs lead down to shale to death. Mm. She ensnares, she traps, she kills. So. Mm. so, why why the use of poetry to make these these really you know very very big uh, pivotal topics that are in the Bible are often addressed 
through poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's a tendency to feel like that poetry serves us in the sense that whenever we're feeling down, maybe we go pick mm-hmm. a psalm and it, you know, it kind of incur- – and I think that's great if, you know, we can read a psalm and it encourages us. But it sounds like that there's something more going on there that maybe we should pay attention to. So, so what makes poetry so powerful for us to pay attention to as we're, you know – understanding theology you know right. like what what is the what is the weightiness of poetry would you say um yeah i think the question already presumes that poetry isn't up to the task mm. right and so it, it, a friend of mine a colleague of mine who works in uh, poetry in the old testament she told me that her students constantly these are seminary students they constantly ask okay okay i i i see what the poem is getting at but why didn't they just say what they meant um <laughs> and to which she says uh they are saying what they mean. You just don't value the form of literature that they're using. Mm. You don't think that it's significant or weighty enough. So I think it, part of it is that at the beginning, the first or second episode, we talked about the kind of the gulf between us and our values and expectations and the biblical authors. So part of that turning up the knob of the volume of the biblical authors is also turning up our own uh, sense of values for what they value uh, and how mm. they communicate. I, I do think it is odd, right? So if, if there's a bomb on the table and we call the bomb squad and they're like, hey, we're going to help you defo- defuse this bomb now, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, don't <laughs> don't cut the wrong one or you'll be something. I don't know. I, I didn't think through the, the rest of that poem. Uh, we'll be like, no, 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 just give us the direct instructions. And I think, you know, what one of the things that poetry pushes us back to is um, – Kind of like a story, like Robert California, we talked about in the mm. last episode. Like you, I'm not just handing you a bunch of facts you can play with. You have to stay with me. Mm. I am the master and commander of what's going to happen mm. here. And you have to kind of uh, follow it through. It puts you in a rhythm where you're submitted to the author's voice in a way that if I just have a, you know, a bunch of facts that I want you to think about, it puts all of it in, in your in your control. So mm. it requires a, action to actually apply yourself to it instead of just here here it is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which means and the, if it is about wisdom and discernment, I mean, if I can just be blunt here, telling people a bunch of facts and then just saying, yeah, those are all true, that doesn't mm. um, foster wisdom and discernment. Giving people difficult situations and then giving them instructions that require them to pay close attention and think about the connective tissues between all these various things that you're telling them. That's actually in every world that we live in, in science and engineering and the arts and humanities and literature, like everything that we think that people do excellently is because they train in difficult circumstances where um, the instructions were not obvious, right? Mm. That you had to pay attention and drill down and, and focus your attention. So for me, all of this reinforces that, that statement I, I, uh, that God wants us to be a wise and discerning people. Mm. Um, and so he's not going to give it to us. Also, I think just, you know, maybe I'm old enough now that I just think if you handed people just the instruction, like, so what is Amos going to go up there and say, like, hey, you guys, quit offering your sacrifices to the wrong God. Quit oppressing the poor. Um, quit quit being horrible people to everybody around you. Quit mistreating the foreigner. Like, he could say all that, um, but what effect would that have? It's mm. another thing when he says, you cows of Bashan, Right who sit in your chairs and demand from your husband drinks. And he like he draws you in poetically mm. and then slams you down. And he says, <laughs> in, the, in the voice of God, he says, I hate, I despise your feast. I hate your sacrifices, right? Quit mm. doing it. So 
There is some sense in which, you know, I think we tend to call this artistic, but I think what they're actually doing is controlling the narrative, controlling the angle, controlling the entire descent into what, where they want you to go so that you can see what they're trying to show you mm. in the most vivid way possible. Hmm. And Robert Alt- Altman, uh, sorry, Alter, who is a, um, a literary scholar uh, who studied Hebrew literature quite a bit, um, he actually thinks that if you have life and death instructions, poetry is probably the best thing uh, to get people to pay attention, mm. pay attention in detail and follow instructions. Hmm. Wow. Cause every, every word, every bit of punctuation matters and it's doing something. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Nothing wasted. Wow. So it sounds to me like there's this, like, like um, I mean, with everything we've been talking about, it kind of requires a little bit of a mindset shift, but especially for this, um, cause I think poetry is one of those things that we're really going to come in with a lot of preconceived notions. And oh, yeah. I think it's going to, it sounds like it's going to be really important that even before we approach biblical poetry, we kind of lay those notions aside and help, help, uh, like take some of these tools to help ourselves understand what the biblical authors are actually trying to accomplish through it. Yeah. And maybe this is just turn down the volume on our own mm. assumptions. Right. Um, I think, uh, I think. Turning on the volume also means, so if we can just get real here, not that we've been fake up to this point, but if we get real, real, I mean, I look at something like every biblical scholar does. We look at uh, something like Proverbs 31, 10 to the end, mm-hmm. and we say, oh, there's a, a poetic form here, an acrostic, that actually the form helps you understand what goes into the poem. Um, and then we see people taking Proverbs 31 and using it almost as a checklist for the ideal wife or the checklist for the ideal woman. Um, and then saying here, we need to attain uh, these things. And, and until we're doing these things, um, then we're not quite where God wants us to be, which interestingly, if you just assume that this was a he- uh, Hebrew piece of poetry, if you knew enough Hebrew or read a footnote in your study Bible that told you this is an acrostic poem, which means Every line of the poem begins with the next letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, all the way, or the Hebrew equivalent, A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. through Z. Uh, n- now we can realize, okay, the the content, the thing that is in every line of that poem, it is important, but it's not a checklist, um, mm-hmm. that it's actually doing something different. Um, and, of course, at some point in that poem, as you read through, you realize, wait, this isn't – I mean, if you think this is a realistic poem describing a real woman who lived in Israel in the Iron Age, um, by the time you hit the fact that women could buy and sell property, women could do a lot of things. What w- a woman can't do is build a vineyard and plant it on her own. That's like a two-family operation. And that's like <laughs> saying to the Amish, you know, an Amish woman, she raised the barn all by herself, right? So um, – there are indications within the poem. This is not meant to be read literalistically and realistically in that way. Um, but understanding poetic form, that it's built out of these little parallel elements, and that it's sometimes structured in these larger forms of acrostic in this case, um, help you not to just commit gross errors when you're reading these poems mm-hmm. as well. What are maybe even like one or two examples of a, a poem in the Bible that is actually kind of a, a cornerstone of, of of theology that maybe we miss. I mean, the the big one that immediately springs to mind is um, the, the Hannah's prayer or song in 1 Samuel. Uh, I mean, we could say the same thing about Exodus 15, interpreting Exodus 14. You could say Deuteronomy 32, the only piece of poetry that Israel is commanded to memorize. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but 1 Samuel uh, and... Uh, Hannah's prayer 
is one of those exquisite moments where you see a woman who's been scorned by her co-wife. So she's married to this other woman. And if that weren't bad enough, uh, her this other woman is pumping out. Sorry, she's not married to this other woman. Did I say that? <laughs> you, yeah. You know, I was like, um, yeah. I don't know if that she was intentional. She's not married to this other woman. She's married with this sister, other woman. Sister wives, as they, yeah. And, um, yeah, sister, they're co-wives. <laughs> co-wives. Uh, and, and her co-wife <laughs> is pumping out babies, and she is not. And her co-wife is insulting her uh, on, mm-hmm. on this front, right? And anybody who's had fertility issues knows how deep those cuts go. Um and so she has her child, Shmuel, uh, Samuel, and then she uh, sings or says this prayer to God where it's really just like uh, upside down kingdom stuff. I, I've heard a lot of New Testament scholars that like actually will say all of this stuff in the New Testament is this radical New Testament ethic of first shall be last and the kingdom's upside down. And I'm like, no, it's all there in Hannah's prayer, mm-hmm. which is why Mary repeats the prayer in her Magnificat in Luke. But um, it's, you know, the bows of the mighty will be broken. The feeble will bind on strength. The one who has had food will have to go seek food. The one who has had many children is going to be forlorn. Like you can tell she's looking over her shoulder at her co-wife at this point. The boasting, the haughty one, let them not boast so proud, right? Uh, God will, God makes poor. He makes rich. He sends down to Sheol. He raises up, which is one of the first indications of resurrection in the mind of ancient Israel there in Hannah's prayer. And so, and you get this, it's not by the, the weapons of war, it's not by one's own might and strength, um, but that God is in control of everything here. And Hannah seems to be the only person that fully understands this. Um, and we just came out of Judges, which was a really, <laughs> really dark period where nobody seemed to understand this. So then we have, um, as we go through the book of Samuels, we see that her view, this poem actually provides the decoder ring for understanding the rest of the book. So when David steps out on the battlefield uh, in the Soko Valley or the Valley of Elah there um, and says, it's not by might, it's not by uh, sword spears, right? But the battle is Yahweh's. And we're like, oh, he sees things, right? He sees this invisible thing going on that nobody else seems to see. Um, and he's em- he's embodying Hannah's theology at that mm. point. He's taking up Hannah's theology and he's actually putting it to the test on the field of battle. Uh, and God gives him victory as he gave him with the lion before and the bear before that. Um, and then what's interesting is we can kind of assess Saul and David and others according to whether they basically live into her theology or reject it, including mm-hmm. David. So Saul rejects it seemingly out of pocket. Um, but David starts out good. And then by the end of First Samuels, uh, he seems to be doing traditional power grabs by the the beginning of Second Samuel, when Saul dies, he weeps, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And he's so worried that the, the most mighty man of valor has fallen. And we're like, wait, wait, what happened to, mm. you know, not by traditional weapons and uh, traditional methods, which I think are meant to tip us off that something's going bad and something's south, going south in David. Uh, and, and we're not sure what's going to happen. Uh, to the point where on David's deathbed, what is he doing? He's telling people, you know, I swore an oath that I would never kill this guy. So Solomon, you go murder him, mm-hmm. right? And this other guy, let let his gray hair go down to Sheol and blood, right? Um, and you see this real turn in David. But the only way you know it's a turn is because you read the poetry very carefully and you understand mm-hmm. that Hannah basically understood what was right. And we were we were intended to know that Hannah had the right view and anybody who had a different view was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, now, or at least in, in, erring in some uh, major way. 
that's a very, very sophisticated use of poetry. That, no offense, Dua Lipa, but that is not Dua Lipa's <laughs> use of poetry, right? That is actually slicing and dicing, providing what it, what God's sovereignty is and what it means and what it entails, uh, and giving examples of people who don't understand that and who have stepped outside of that. And then when we see characters who understand, uh, who let Hannah get over their shoulder, metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. and point out reality to them, they succeed and we, and we like them. And, uh, and even as those same people turn, and take uh, take the other direction. We know that they've gone wrong because of Hannah. Mm. And again, it makes sense why Mary, when she cries out her Magnificat, is basically mirroring the words of Hannah's prayer. If you've never read those two side by side, do yourself a favor and read uh, Mary's song and Hannah's song side by side, and you'll see that Mary is just repeating Hannah's mm. song. Wow. Well, there's some field work <laughs> before our next episode. If you want to check that out, um, highly recommend that. Um, it's really interesting just to see how much, uh, you know, like throughout the Bible, and I think you've mentioned this before, there's there's um, not a whole lot of places where God necessarily says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. But there's these stories that you read. There's these uh, this, the poetry that you read. You read the law and you can kind of get a sense of, well, this worked out well and this didn't work out well. So that must mean. So there's some kind of deductive reasoning there. But it sounds like that from poetry – Poetry can almost be the most direct in a sense of mm-hmm. like interpreting. Yeah. Like this is ac- this was what's right. This is what's wrong. As you mentioned the, um, uh, the the song of Miriam after mm-hmm. after the crossing of the Red Sea kind of helps interpret what just happened. Yeah. Um, would you say that poetry could almost be used as a as a tool to kind of help us understand what's happening in other parts of Scripture? Yeah, I mean, in Exodus 15 and uh, Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam that come uh, right after the crossing of the Red Sea. They actually tell us things that weren't in the story, right? Mm. So in the story, it's Moses raising his hands, Moses doing this, Moses doing that. The the poem is Moses crying out saying it was the mighty hand of God who mm. did all of these things. It was God's breath. It was God's uh, desire to do these things. Who is like our God amongst the gods, right? Mm. So the, if you don't have the poem, you're left really with some open questions or you just have to broadly assume, okay, I guess this was Yahweh who was mm. doing this and these were the reasons and this is who was affected. The poem kind of seals the deal. Um, so, yeah, it's actually a more direct way of focusing your attention on what you just read. Hmm. Wow. Well, be sure to come back for the next episode. We're going to actually dig into some examples of poetic reasoning and how we see this play out in Scripture. So you won't want to miss it. Uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Discover Your Roots. This podcast is brought to you by the Passages team and is made possible by our generous donors. If you'd like to make a contribution to the work we do, please visit PassagesIsrael.org and click the Donate button. To find more resources about the Bible in its original context, the roots of the Christian faith in Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jewish-Christian relations, and more, subscribe to our newsletter at PassagesIsrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's PassagesIsrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media to learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.